Let's go to John chapter 17 this morning. And, and we're going to divide this up into sections, so we won't read it all at once. I'll, I'll read it as I get to the, the section um, as we prepare to cover that, because it's divided up into three really distinct sections for us today. This is... Uh, I don't know, we spent a lot of weeks in John 17, because there's so many things here, but that's, that's not kind of how we have it planned. We're just going to spend one, one week in this. Uh, when I arrived here 10, 10 and a half years ago, um, the past years before me, Dave Reynolds, had done a series on this, and I, it, was, it was 10 or 12 weeks worth of John 17, and I read through that uh, years ago and, and was, was uh, very, uh, very blessed by it. It's rich, and, and this is one of those chapters, um, you know, if you see the red letters, you know, it's all Jesus here, basically, okay, because it is his prayer, okay, it is his prayer. So let's pray before we get into this. Heavenly Father, send your Holy Spirit upon us today, that we would have understanding to what these words mean in our lives today, how we are to live because of the prayer of Jesus, because of his care for us and his desire for certain things in the lives of those who belong to him. I ask this in his name. Amen. Now, every Sunday, we pray or Every once in a while, we'll sing the Lord's Prayer. Okay, When we call it the Lord's Prayer, and we have for, I don't know, generations as far as I know. But in reality, it's how the Lord taught us to pray. Remember, the disciples say, well, Lord, teach us how to pray. And he says, you should pray like this. And he gives us the Lord's Prayer. John 17 is the Lord's Prayer. Because it is the word, these are the words of Christ as they are delivered to his heavenly Father in prayer, in prayer. So from this, we learn about him, about his, his role with the Father and how the Father's work is to be carried out through him, how he views those who he is about to give his life for, how he views the church. I mean, as I said, this is just full. This is a very, very rich chapter. Now, in most of what we have from the words of Jesus, we find God talking to us where he says, this is how you are to understand the Lord, or these are the things the Lord wants you to, to be aware of. And, and he does it in a way that we can understand. John Calvin called it theological baby talk. Okay? Now, you understand we have this all-powerful, all-righteous, eternal God, and he is communicating to his creation. And, and that would be us, and we are finite, and we are sometimes stupid, more than others, we are fickle, uh, but he extends himself in a way that we can understand him. Okay, So he does that. Now, I, I began to think, just as an aside, that's the way he talks to us. And, and sometimes it's very simple. Uh, Jesus wept. We know what went on. Then you read some of the writings of Paul. And, and, and single sentences that go on for 100 or 120 words. I mean, they're just so complex. They're so rich as well, but they're very complex. Now, that's the way he communicates to us. How does the Godhead communicate to one another? Okay? Understand, they have been here from all time, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. They are the same essence. They know their position. In Ephesians chapter 2, equality with God, Jesus said, was not something to be grasped. Okay? He was obedient to the Father. The Holy Spirit does the will of the Father and the Son, but yet they are one God. How do they communicate? I mean, they're perfect, and they're holy, and they're righteous, and how do they talk to one another? 
Well, here in John chapter 17, we get a glimpse of this, and maybe, perhaps, this is done so that we can understand how they communicate to one another. Understand that John chapter 17 is that theological discussion between the Son and the Father. And here in this chapter, we have some of the simplest sentences in all of the New Testament. Some of the simplest sentences, yet they are some of the most profound and deep and theologically rich sentences as well. It is the language of the Father to the Son. And if it is so simple, if we don't understand it, it's because of our own spiritual ignorance or lack of a spiritual sensitivity. Now, Philip Melanchthon, who was a buddy of Luther at the time of the Reformation, uh, gave his last, the last lecture of his life on this chapter. And he said, There is no voice which has ever been heard, neither in heaven or in earth, more exalted, more holy, more fruitful, or more sublime than the prayer offered up by the Son of God himself in this chapter. The prayer breaks down, as I said, into three sections. First section is verses 1 through 5, and that is Christ's prayer for himself. Christ's prayer for himself. And then we get 6 through 19. It is his prayer for his disciples. Okay, for himself, for his disciples. And then 20 through 26 is his prayer for all those in the future who belong to him. All those in the future who belong to him. The bulk of this chapter is devoted to others. Okay, there are five, um, five petitions in this chapter. One is for Christ. The other four are for his church. Okay? So let me read verses 1 through 5 here. These things Jesus spoke, and lifting up his eyes to heaven, he said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify thy Son, that the Son may glorify thee, even as thou hast givest him all authority over all mankind, that to all whom thou hast given him, he may give eternal life. And this is eternal life, that they may know thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom thou hast sent. I glorified thee on earth, having accomplished the work which thou hast given me to do, And now glorify thou me together with thyself, Father, with the glory which I had with thee before the world was. So the first petition is that the Father would glorify the Son so that the Son might glorify the Father. Now let's do a quick review on glory. The Greek word for glory is doxo, it's a doxology, that's what we sing, um, I'm suddenly blanking on the doxology. What is it? Um, Praise God from all blessing all creatures. Praise him, all heavenly father. Okay, you got that? Okay, the doxology. We give glory to God as we sing that. Well, the Greek is also used in the word orthodoxy. Okay, orthodoxy meaning uh, the right uh, attitude, the right teaching, the correct opinion. So as the New Testament writers apply this word to God, it deals not with just the correct opinion of God, but with the intrinsic value and worth that comes with God. So God alone is orthodox as an expression of his glory. His intrinsic value is clear, and that is a demonstration of his glory. When the disciples say in chapter 2 that we beheld his glory, they actually beheld his character and therefore the intrinsic worth of God. 
Now in the Hebrew, as we've looked at it many times before, uh, the word glory deals with a, a much more of a tangible representation of the Lord. We see the Shekinah glory as it dwells in the Holy of Holies. We see the cloud. We see the pillar of fire. We see the Lord manifest himself in this, these types of things. And that glory has a sense of what's, what we call weightiness to it, a reality to it, a sense of something real, a sense of something that is tangible. So Jesus possessed this glory when he was with the Father prior to the incarnation. And then when the incarnation, uh, he laid that glory aside and took on the form of a man. And in this prayer, he says, Heavenly Father, give that, in a sense, give that glory back to me so that, what? I might glorify you. Give that glory back at this time that you might be glorified. Now in his time on earth, he prays that, and we might see this visible glory, I think, uh, when we go to Acts, there's some sense of Stephen as he is being stoned. He, he senses this glory of the Lord, and as they're, they're throwing the stones at him, his countenance is fixed upon the Lord. Uh, perhaps Paul saw this glory on the road to Damascus. Maybe even John, as he was getting the, Revel, the book of Revelation, as the Lord was revealing that to him, got a sense of the glory of Christ and the glory of our Heavenly Father. Now, in this section, Jesus mentions that all authority over all people have been given to him and the power to give eternal life. It's already been granted to him. It was a joy of Christ to know that his death would secure salvation for those who belong to him. Okay? Hebrews chapter 12, John chapter 6, we see this reflected. Now remember the scope of the authority of Christ. It is over all people. He is King of kings and Lord of lords. That means whether you're rich or poor, educated or uneducated, whether you're a savage or you're sophisticated, he is Lord over all. Whether they are demons, whether they are trees, he is Lord over everything. There is not one molecule that's floating out here in space that does not come under his lordship and his authority. Now, that authority extends to give eternal life to those that belong to him, and that is his alone. We see in John 14, 6, I am the way and the truth and the life, and no one gets to the Father except through me. There are no exceptions to that. Okay? And, and we think that, well, there are other places that promise some form of eternal life or some form of heaven. You've got uh, uh, nirvana or you've got uh, reincarnation. And all reincarnation does is, is guarantee that you'll come back as something, if you've done well, something better. If you've done worse, something worse. Okay? What is the arb- what's the determiner of what, how you have lived, that you've lived to come back as, as a, uh, something better in life, or maybe you're going to come back as uh, you know, somebody's dog? I, I, I don't know. I don't believe in reincarnation, so I, I don't study it that much. Um, or if you, you, you give up your life, some places teach that, that all these great things await for you in heaven as they understand it. The authority to grant eternal life has been given only to Christ. To nobody else, to no other religion, to no other false god or false teaching, it only rests in the hands of Christ. And we confess that fact every time that we say Jesus is Lord. Okay, it's a big L. He is Lord of all. A frightening statistic this week that I read is that half, in a poll, half of evangelicals polled believe that there are other ways to heaven than through Jesus Christ alone. Now, let's think about that. 
and, and evangelicals, they, they fall into this category. They're defined and they say, yes, I'm part of that category. And then the question is, are there other ways to heaven outside of Jesus Christ? And half of them said, yes, that's just plain stupid. Okay, I don't know how else to put it. How can you say that? How can you declare that Jesus Christ is Lord of all and then go, oh, well, except for those, they're going to find their own way to heaven. Or they're going to work their own way to heaven. That's not what Jesus teaches at all. There are no other means of salvation than him. So Jesus has accomplished the work that's been given to him by the Father. That's the work of salvation. Notice again how Jesus speaks of the work which has been accomplished, and he has yet to give his life. But it is a guarantee that he has accomplished what the Lord has sent him to do. And then the words on the cross. Remember, if you've ever gone to a a Good Friday service, the seven last words, and one of those last words is, it is finished. It is finished. It's the same word that the Greeks would write on a bill of sale, which meant paid in full. The work of Christ is done. Our debt has been paid in full. Okay? And he is saying at this point, which is still the day before he gives his life, he says, this work is done. I have accomplished what the Lord, my Heavenly Father, has sent me to do. So he says, Heavenly Father, glorify me that in the demonstration of my life and in the demonstration of my atoning death, you might be glorified. If you want, let's, let's turn over to Isaiah 53. I, I love this passage. I, I think uh, we have to read it today. We think, wasn't there any other way that salvation could have been obtained? Wasn't there any other way to do this great work that had to be done? But we see 600 years or so before Christ came, Isaiah is talking about the one who would give his life, the suffering servant. Go to verse 10 of chapter 53. We'll read the end of verse 9. Because he had done no violence, nor was there any deceit in his mouth, But the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief. It was the Father's will that Christ would give his life in this fashion. From all eternity, it was determined that this would be the payment for the sin of humanity. That this would be the atoning death. His blood would cleanse the sin of all those who belonged to him. It was the Lord's will to crush him, to put him to grief, to render him as a guilt offering. For the likes of us. For the likes of us. Let's go back to John chapter 17. The next section, verses 16 through 19. 6 through 19. Jesus says, he's continuing the prayer. I manifested thy name to the men whom thou gavest me out of the world. Thine they were, and thou gavest them to me, and they have kept thy word. Now they have come to know that everything thou hast given me is from thee. For the words which thou gavest me, I have given to them. And they received them and truly understood that I came forth from thee, and they believed that thou didst send me. I ask on their behalf, I do not ask on behalf of the world, but of those whom thou hast given me, for they are thine. And all things that are mine are thine, and thine are mine, and I have been glorified in them. And I am no more in the world, and yet they themselves are in the world. And I come to thee, 
Holy Father, keep them in thy name, the name which thou hast given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I was keeping them in thy name, which thou hast given me, and I guarded them, and not one of them perished, but the son of perdition, that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I come to thee, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy made full in themselves. I have given them thy word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world." I do not ask thee to take them out of the world, but keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Thy word is truth. As thou didst send me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. And for their sakes, I sanctify myself that they themselves also may be sanctified in truth. Jesus prays for his disciples. Now think of your prayer life for a minute. What's it like? Do you have a list? How many things are those concerning you? How many things are concerning other people? How many things are there concerning the glory of God? Okay? Christ spends the smallest amount of time on himself, the largest amount of time on others. And when he prays for himself, it is only so that his heavenly Father might be glorified in what goes on in his life and in his actions. So first he asked for the glory, that he might return glory to the Father. That was the first petition, and now he mentions those whom the Father has given to the Son out of this world. And we've seen in in the previous sections in, in John what he talks about here. The world will hate them. They are chosen out of this world. And here he reminds us about the work of salvation. It's a very clear statement that our salvation is anchored in the desire and plan of our Heavenly Father. This is not a surprise, okay? Scripture teaches us that it is his desire to save those who belong to him. We have been given to Jesus. He has paid the price. There is nothing else that could be done, nothing else to be done. It is paid in full. It is finished. What's the hymn? Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. Choir, help me. He washed it white as snow. There you have it. Now, an evidence of salvation is continuation. An evidence of salvation is continuation. The continuation of the believer in the word of God. The continuation of the believer to walk in the things of Christ. The continuation of the believer to dig into the knowledge of what the Lord has done in his life. Okay? Once salvation has come to the believer, his or her life will be a continual demonstration of that salvation. Never a perfect demonstration, but a continual demonstration. Accepting the word of God is more than acknowledging the word of God. Okay? The demons acknowledge that this is the word of God. They don't accept it. Okay? But to accept it means to obey it. Okay, that's the structure of the language. By accepting it, it involves obedience. One does not actually accept that Christ is Lord without obeying Christ as Lord. One does not accept that Christ is Lord without obeying Christ as Lord. Okay? You can't have Savior without Lord. 
Okay? You just can't have Christ as your Savior. You know my Christ is my Savior? Great. Is he your Lord as well? Okay? Because when it comes to lordship, we live under the submission of Christ our Savior. You can't just say Christ is my Savior and then go off and do whatever you please to do. He must be the Lord. He must control your life. You must work in all things to live in obedience to what he says. Okay, look at verses 9 and 10 here. I ask on their behalf, I do not ask on behalf of the world, but of those whom thou hast given me, for they are mine. And all things that are mine are thine, and thine are mine, and I have been glorified in them. Jesus prays for those who are his. That's it. I don't read that he prays for those who are not his. He prays for those who belong to him. Let me quote from Charles Spurgeon. I remark that our Lord Jesus pleads for his own people. When he puts on his priestly breastplate, it is for the tribe whose names are there. When he presents the atoning sacrifice, it is for Israel whom God has chosen. Those who belong to Christ hold a unique position in all the universe. They are prayed for by the Son of God. The distinction between Peter and Judas. Both sinned. Jesus did not pray for Judas. What did he tell Peter? He said, Satan has requested to sift you like weak, but I have prayed for you. He intercedes on behalf of those who belong to him. So Christ prays for us for two reasons. First, we belong to the Father, and anything that belongs to the Father has intrinsic value. Secondly, the Father and the Son are both invested in us. They are yours, they are mine. Whatever is important to us is important to the Heavenly Father. Whatever is important to the Heavenly Father is important to Christ. And whatever is important to Christ better be important to us. Okay? We are of value because we are His creation. We belong to Him alone. Now that is the creator of all the world. The creator of all that we see. And yet He is concerned about everything within us. Everything about us. If you've ever been to Disney World... Okay, my, my daughter worked at Disney World, so I know all the secrets, okay, all the secrets of Disney. You go to Disney, and you walk in, and, and there you see it laid out before you. What you don't see is the world underneath Disney, okay? When Walt Disney, Walt, he and I were real close. When Walt bought all that marshland in Kissimmee, he went in and dug it all out and brought in all this good dirt and packed it down and then began to build the first layer of Disney, which is completely underground, you don't get to see it, okay? But all the characters, how do the characters get to where they're supposed to be and you never see them because they go underground. They go through the tunnels. They come up. There's a whole city underneath there, okay? And when you go to Disney, you're not concerned about the city underneath. You're concerned about Mickey and the rides and the shows and how are you going to pay for that $7 hot dog. I mean, you're concerned about those things. You're not underneath, okay? It's two different worlds, But the God who has created everything is just as concerned about your world as he is about all of the universe. There is no discrepancy in his concern or his attention to detail. The smallest thing in your life receives as much attention by our Heavenly Father as the biggest catastrophe. That is who he is. He is concerned about all that we do, about all that we do. But he's only concerned about those who belong to him. That's what Jesus says. I pray for those who belong to me. Jump down to 17, verse 17. Sanctify them in the truth. Thy truth is, thy word is truth. Okay? 
Again, let me quote a little bit of Charles Spurgeon here. Sanctification begins in regeneration. The spirit of truth, the spirit of God, infuses into man that new living principle by which he becomes a new creation in Christ Jesus. This work, which begins in the new birth, is carried on in two ways, mortification and vivification. Mortification and vivification. Mortification is the killing of sin in our lives. That's what we are to be about. That's part of sanctification. Destroy the sin. Put it to death. Run away from it, whatever is necessary. And then vivification, the living out of the things of Christ and the glorifying of him in all that we do and enjoying that grace that is given to us. So we're going to kill sin. We're going to live for grace. That's what Spurgeon is talking about here. This is carried on every day in what is called perseverance, by which the Christian is preserved and continued in a gracious state and is made to abound in good works unto the praise and glory of God. And it culminates or comes to perfection in glory when the soul being thoroughly purged is caught up into heaven and to dwell with the Lord on high. While the Spirit of God is thus the author of sanctification, yet there is a visible agency employed which must not be forgotten. Sanctify them, Jesus says. And how does, how does he say sanctify them? Through thy truth and thy word is truth. Right here. This is truth. The passage of scripture which, which proves that the instrument of our sanctification is the word of God. There are many passages that talk about that. Many. Your, your, lamp, your word is a lamp unto my feet. Okay, just as one example, the things of God's word lead us into the path of righteousness. The question is, are you going to believe it? Are you going to live that? Because there are a lot of paths you can take, a lot of ways to go. Are you going to go on the path that the Lord lays before you? Are you going to go on your own path? Okay. Spurgeon says, do not say of any error. It is a matter of opinion. No man indulges an error of judgment without sooner or later tolerating an error of practice. What he says If you hold an error in your heart, sooner or later you're going to live that error out. Okay, you might think it is a secret thing within your heart, but sooner or later it will be demonstrated. Sooner or later it will come to light in what you say or what you do or your attitudes. He said we need to purge those things by the truth, by filling our lives with the word of God. Okay, the last section here, 20 to 26. I do not ask in behalf of those alone, but for those also who believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, even as thou, Father, art in me, and I in thee, that they also may be in us, that the world may believe that thou didst sent me. And the glory which thou hast given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, just as we are one, I in them, and thou in me, that they may be perfected in unity." That the world may know that thou didst send me and didst love me and love them even as thou didst love me. Father, I desire that they also whom thou hast given me be with me where I am, in order that they may behold my glory which thou hast given me. For thou didst love me before the foundations of the world. Righteous Father, although the world has not known thee, yet I have known thee, and these have known that thou didst send me. And I have made thy name known to them, and will make it known, that the love wherewith thou dost love me may be in them, and I in them. And I in them. Christ's prayer for all those who follow him, for all those who belong to him. One portion of this is the unity of the church. It's a unity not based on our diversity. It's a, not, it's a unity not based on, on uh, the gathering of individuals. It's not based on organization. 
It's based upon Christ, and it's based upon his word. Now, the Lord does not rubber stamp us that we are all the same. We have been given different gifts. Paul is very clear of that in Corinthians. We are all one body, though, and that is the unity that we are to rejoice in. We belong to Christ. We are the body of Christ. Now, you can't be unified around the teachings of men. You can be excited about some of the teachings of men, but the teachings of men come and go. They change. They are relative. Okay, that's why in some of the founding documents of our nation, it says we are what? We are endowed by our creator with certain inalienable rights. Those rights cannot be taken away from us. Why? Because no man gives them to us. They come from God. Now, if a man gives me a right, he can take it back. But if God gives me a right, he does not change. He is the same today, yesterday, and for all time. So the unit, the purpose of this unity is to let the world know that you sent me and has, have loved me even as I have loved them. Nobody loves that way in this world. We all are partial to something. Okay? We love our family more than our friends. We love our friends more than our acquaintances. We love our acquaintances more than strangers. We love our dogs more than strangers. Okay? But God has no favorites. Those who are his, he loves. Whether you're his for a day or whether you're his for 90 years, his love for you is the same, and it is demonstrated in the work of Christ. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever shall believe in him shall have everlasting life. That is love. What is love? That a man laid down his life for his friends. That is what Christ has done. For those who belong to him, we can never be taken from his hand. Okay? It's the work of Christ puts us there. It's the power of the Holy Spirit that keeps us there. And we will be preserved until the day that Christ returns for us. We will spend all eternity with him. This is just part of this prayer. And he calls us as a body of believers to rejoice in that and to live for that and to do all we can that those around us would know of the same truth of Jesus Christ. So let's pray. Lord, these words are plain and simple. You love us. Our Lord Jesus Christ prays for those who belong to him. He prays that we might know the glory of the Heavenly Father, which he will show. He prays that those who belong to him will be protected and preserved. He prays that we'll be sanctified, that we can kill the sin in our lives and work to put it aside and, and, and nourish and plant and, and grow that, that, that grace that you have given to us, that it might be clearly demonstrated. That the more we know about you according to your word, the greater we'll be sanctified, the more we'll be like Christ. These are not easy things to achieve. They take work. And they take sometimes decisions from us when we come face to face with things. Will I go off the path or will I go on the path that your word has lit for my feet right before me? There's enough sin within us that we think, well, going off the path might be pretty good. It looks attractive. But your word says this is where we need to be. Lord, come upon us today. All of us face these things, sometimes daily. Remind us of the presence of the Holy Spirit within each believer. 
that our heart would be strengthened, that our courage would be without fail, that our desire to live the things of Christ would be without compromise, that we would fear no man but only fear you, the holy and righteous fear, that you have sent your son to give his life for us and we are forever protected and guaranteed in that salvation and that you will come and walk before us, that you will come and empower us to the work that you lay before us. Lord, fix these things in our hearts today that our lives might reflect your glory. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.